Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement Author in the Room conference call. My name is Michelle, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Michelle, and greetings, everyone. Welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by the, Ameri uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Michelle Seda, is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'm pleased to be here with you today. I'll be your moderator for today's call. Um, we are delighted that uh, you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. We are excited today to have Dr. Uh, David Spiro with us and discussing his recent article, Wait and See Prescription for the Treatment of Acute Otitis Media. Uh, just so everyone is aware, our next author in the room uh, call uh, in November, one month from today, is Fish Intake Contaminants and Human Health by Dr. Dariush Muzaffarian, uh, and that article is published in today, October 18, 2006, today's JAMA, uh, where you can find that. And uh, we're enthused about having everybody on the call uh, next month as well. This article by uh, Dr. Spiro, we are uh, delighted to uh, have as the topic of our conversation. Dr. Spiro is uh, an assistant professor in the uh, Department of Emergency Medicine and Pediatrics at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Uh, like almost all of the authors that we've had, Dr. Spiro is a uh, practicing clinician. And uh, I think that's very important because almost all of the authors bring with them not just their research, but uh, uh, a great experience in both their own clinic and in driving improvement. Uh, one of the roles that Dr. Spiro does have uh, at OHSU, Oregon Health and Sciences University, is being a member of the Clinical Quality Improvement Committee in the Department of Emergency Medicine. So he's very in tune with some of the improvement work that we need to talk about today. Uh, Dr. Uh, Spiro was previously at Yale where he initiated this research uh, before moving to uh, Portland to uh, take on his current position. Uh, welcome, Dr. Spiro. Good morning. As the moderator of your call, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Spiro's research with an eye towards clinical improvement. Uh, in this case, improving the, the way we manage uh, youngsters with acute otitis media. An interesting thing about all of our calls is that the context for the calls almost always goes well beyond uh, the specific uh, focus of investigation, in this case, otitis media. I think as almost everybody on the call knows, what is so engaging about this particular article is not necessarily otitis media, although we're interested in that piece also, but I think the whole issue of what happens when we really engage uh, individuals, patients, and parents in decision-making, and I really look forward to having that be an important part of the call. So the purpose of, of author in the room is to allow you, the participants, to hear directly from the author or authors about the research findings that can improve patient care, but also, again, to allow us to talk together about this larger context, which has so much to do with improvement. 
So today, Dr. Spiro and I will help you to translate what's in this paper and do hopefully changes that are applicable in your practice. The hour will proceed as is such. Uh, I will turn the call over to Dr. Spiro in just a minute, and he'll spend about 10 minutes summarizing uh, his findings. Uh, and uh, then uh, he and I will uh, talk a little bit about some of the larger implications of the article, and then we'll open up the call uh, for your questions and answers and participation. Importantly, I'd like to stress how important your participation is in the calls. It's really a great forum for you to speak with, uh, ask questions of the author, but also to give your own experience, in this case, with either trying to change behavior around otitis media management uh, or just to change practice patterns in general, which this article has so much to do with. So please feel free, uh, and Michelle, the operator, will let you know in a second how to participate in the question and answer period, but please feel free to bring your experiences uh, to bear also on some of the comments that you may have. We have approximately uh, 50 uh, different centers calling in today from a wide range of organizations in Canada and the United States. Uh, there are several people on each uh, call uh, line, so we probably have several hundred people out there. Some members of the media may be present on today's call as a background ba on a background basis all, uh, only. Uh, one other note, this call and other author in the room uh, calls are recorded, and they are both available on both the IHI and JAMA websites as audio files. So uh, welcome again to everybody, and let's get started. Uh, let me again uh, introduce Dr. David Spiro, who will provide an overview of his article. Uh, welcome again, David. Thank you, and I just want to uh, mention how uh, honored I am to be here as part of this program. Um, would you like me, Chuck, to begin at this point? Yeah, go ahead and get started. Thanks. First of all, I'd like to, again, thank you, Chuck, and I also, uh, before we even begin, I'd like to thank uh, all the co-authors of the study uh, for their contributions, uh, especially uh, Gene Shapiro, uh, who's my mentor uh, at Yale University, uh, for their contributions. And as well, um, I want to briefly mention to the audience that prior to my uh, time in academic medicine, I uh, completed a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and then spent three years at Yale. Uh, I was a practicing uh, pediatrician in general pediatrics in a small town in Oregon for five years and worked on a Native American reservation. And the genesis of this study uh, came from my uh, experience not only in emergency medicine uh, for children, but also in the practice of general pediatrics uh, uh, in a small town. Uh, I, to, to start off, the again, the genesis not only in terms of my personal uh, background, but the background of acute otitis media is impressive. There uh, are greater than 15 million antibiotic prescriptions written every year in the United States alone for this diagnosis. It's the most common reason why children are prescribed antibiotics in the United States. Uh, and this should be compared to uh, other developed countries, uh, particularly in Europe, such as the Netherlands, where they prescribe uh, immediate antibiotics for cutotitis media in a minority of cases where in the United States the prescription rate is quite high, uh, greater than 95% for the diagnosis of acute otitis media. However, the complication rates in the United States and, uh, and the Netherlands and in other parts of Europe, the primary of which are mastoiditis, are approximately the same. 
So, uh, and there has been some uh, the, uh, seminal work done by Dr. Paul Little in regard to uh, delayed prescriptions for acute otitis media and other conditions uh, from England, uh, and really Europe has led um, uh, the world, and especially Dr. Little, in uh, not only designing studies but employing the practice of, uh, of empowering families uh, with prescriptions. Uh, for delayed uh, 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 antibiotic use. So uh, what we uh, set out to do was to uh, perform a randomized control trial, and we performed this study over the course of, uh, of one calendar year uh, in an urban emergency department in New Haven, Connecticut. And we evaluated all children from the ages of approximately six months to 12 years in an emergency department, and the, and the children's families were randomized to receive either, either a wait and see prescription, which we called WASP in the study, or a standard prescription. Uh, the prescriptions were, were written to be exactly the same. They were an antibiotic of the doctor's choice. However, the intervention in this study was, were the instructions that the emergency medicine physician gave the family. For the wait and see prescription, the instruction was to wait and see for 48 hours, and at 48 hours, if the child was not better or worse, to fill the prescription. And for the standard prescription, the family was instructed to fill the prescription immediately. An important component of this study is that both groups, uh, whether a patient was enrolled to the wait and see prescription group or the standard prescription group, both groups received ibuprofen and otic analgesic drops for use at home. The reason why I say that's an important point is that those me uh, medications and a strong recommendation from the last clinical guideline from the American Academy of Pediatrics is to treat pain aggressively with acute otitis media. Uh, and so we did so for both groups. And then what we had is a, uh, a research assistant uh, who was blinded to group assignment, uh, which is important in regard to the methods of this study. Uh, uh, she conducted interviews at approximately four to six days, 11 to 14 days, and 30 to 40 days after enrollment. So there were three follow-up periods for this particular study at those intervals. And the main outcome measure of the study was uh, the filling of the antibiotic prescription, and a secondary outcome was the clinical course and how we followed that over time. And again, the clinical course was followed by the structured phone interviews that were set up uh, a priori. In terms of uh, our results, uh, we, we ultimately randomized uh, 283 patients into the study. We uh, evaluated uh, close to 800 patients that uh, came through the emergency department. However, uh, approximately 500 or 493 patients were not enrolled for various reasons. Uh, 308 were not enrolled uh, because they did not meet inclusion criteria, and this was the most common reason why children were not enrolled in our study. Uh, and uh, in 133 of those uh, 493 patients, the parents did not actually uh, give consent for the study, and 52 were not enrolled by 
the attending physician discretion, uh, probably because uh, they just were uh, missed as part of the uh, daily practice of emergency medicine. So uh, the inclusion criteria were children with acute otitis media and were not previously enrolled in the study. Uh, it is important in a study like this to be uh, aware of what the exclusion criteria were, uh, as you might want to generalize this to your patient population. So if we suspected a patient had a bacterial infection, such as pneumonia, they were excluded, as well as if the patient looked very ill or if the patient was hospitalized or had any history or potential history of being immunocompromised or being treated with antibiotics in the preceding week. Uh, those patients with uh, tympanometry tubes uh, had uncertain access to medical care, including no phone access, or if a language was not English or Spanish, uh, the patient was excluded from the study. And again, overall, we uh, randomized 283 patients into the study, and our uh, major outcome, which was uh, uh, the fill rate uh, of the antibiotic, in the wait and see group, approximately 62% of the patients did not fill the prescription uh, as compared to 13% of the patients in the uh, standard prescription group. Uh, and there were no statistically significant differences between the groups in the clinical course. And the main components of the clinical course uh, are fever, uh, otalgia or ear pain, or unscheduled visits to the me for medical care. And we looked at uh, other issues, uh, such as uh, diarrhea, which was more uh, uh, common and statistically significant in children in the standard prescription group, which makes sense because diarrhea is a common side effect associated with uh, the use of antibiotics. Uh, within the wait and see group, so an analysis that was performed uh, looking at just those patients within the wait and see group, both fever and uh, otalgia were associated with filling the antibiotic prescription. And this is important because this is what we actually uh, a priori hypothesized that those in the wait and see group would fill the prescription uh, because of these particular indicators, uh, which is what we wanted, because we want parents to fill the prescription for those children who continue to remain symptomatic at 48 hours after the wait and see prescription is given to the family. So our overall conclusions uh, for the study was that the wait and see prescription approach uh, substantially reduced unnecessary use of antibiotics in children and uh, uh, was uh, and, and maybe an alternative use to routine uh, and immediate prescription of antimicrobials in children. The last point I wanted to make in regard to our conclusions was that this is an empowering effect for parents. And uh, I think as time has progressed, and uh, we're now practicing medicine, obviously, in 2006, I think uh, there are many uh, conditions, uh, including acute otitis media, where parents can be empowered with uh, helping the physician uh, make a decision uh, about the treatment of their child. And in this particular study, uh, we found that this was a uh, safe 
alternative to immediate prescription. The one caveat I will mention is that we did not have power. Uh, our study was not adequately powered. We did not have sufficient numbers to determine if one group would have a higher incidence of the main separative complication of acute otitis media, which is mastoiditis. Uh, however, uh, uh, we do know from a natural experiment occurring uh, at this time, which I briefly mentioned at the beginning part of this conversation, is that uh, in the Netherlands, the rates of mastoiditis are similar uh, to those in the United States, and in the Netherlands, uh, either a delayed prescription or no pr prescription is given to families with acute otitis media. So, Chuck, I'll turn it back over to you. David, wonderful. I appreciate that. Um, so we want to turn now from what the research uh, shows, David's summary, into what recommendations we might have for changing clinical practice. And I think this is a perfect article in which to do so, both for uh, issues around treating otitis media itself and also for issues of how we engage people uh, in decision-making, both when we're together uh, and decision-making once they leave uh, the interaction with us. Uh, we'll turn to questions from our callers, from you all, uh, participants, in, uh, in just a minute. Uh, the challenge is, though, to take these lessons from the study and to use them in, in clinical practice. Uh, I think is uh, just looking at the participant list, I think almost everybody on the call or your organization is in tune with the model that we use at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement for Improvement called the Model for Improvement, uh, published by uh, Tom Nolan and colleagues. And in the model, there are a couple of different components. The first, com the first part uh, has three questions. The first is a statement of aim. What is it that we're trying to accomplish, in this case, uh, both excellent care for uh, children with, with otitis media, but also uh, a control of the way that we use antibiotics and a reduction of antibiotic resistance in the community from the unnecessary use of antibiotics. And the second is how do we measure uh, uh, these outcomes? And the third is what changes do we have that could help us to achieve our goal? Uh, I think uh, this paper is really all about the change, uh, which is the wait-and-see approach and uh, we'll come back to that in just a second. But David, really, what I want to think about is, um, from your perspective uh, and your advice to the listeners on the issue of measurement, uh, it's a challenge to measure um, antibiotic use if we use the wait-and-see approach in clinical practice. And maybe what your article is saying is that we don't really need to worry about it. What we, what we need to do is change our practice so that we give parents the option uh, I'm assuming we could call up pharmacies later on and see if the patient actually filled, you know, got the prescription filled, or we can certainly use uh, payer data. But that's a it's a real challenge and be a lot of work to do both of those things. Uh, any particular thoughts on how we would measure this? As an example, in the in in your emergency room um, uh, after the official study is over, any particular thoughts on measurement? I think it's a good question. Uh, I think if you're in general practice. Uh, I, I, and again, I think pediatrics is different than internal medicine, internal medicine subspecialties, is that most parents are honest. Not all parents, but most parents are honest. And when I was in practice, I actually employed this approach, and I asked parents to call in uh, my uh, nurse or uh, leave a message uh, if they did fill the prescription or they did not. I usually I'd ask them to just call if they did fill the prescription. I think there are a number of options in healthcare organizations, such as Kaiser or other HMOs, where it is a closed system and, and uh, doing a review uh, 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 for quality of care 
uh, in a closed system um, might uh, be helpful for uh, those administrators and physicians who are interested in uh, this kind of um, issue. Uh, and I think if you're in an emergency department, I think the only way to perform something like this, this kind of measure, would be to actually call the pharmacies, uh, which is what we did. We actually, uh, uh, for a, a sample of our patients, approximately a third of the patients, we actually called uh, and actually uh, validated whether they did or did not fill the prescription to see if they were telling the truth because one of the issues was in our study because our main outcome measure was the parents telling us whether they did or did not fill the prescription. We needed to validate that. And we actually found that, uh, that uh, in almost all cases, parents did tell us the truth. Wonderful. The the intervention. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about that first. It seems like the intervention because it's a it's a randomized trial. You probably try to use pretty clear scripts between both groups, and not too extensive of scripts, which would make it challenging probably to randomize the groups. And on page uh, the second page of the article under intervention, it gives the quotes that you use with parents, uh, with the written instruction for the wait and see uh, prescription group being not to fill the antibiotic prescription unless your child is either not better or worse in 48 hours, two days after today's visit. Was the conversation more extensive than that, or was it really that sort of pithy and direct? It was, it was that direct. Yep. And, uh, you know, we actually, most of the time, residents went in and gave this information residents that would spend a month with us. So many of them had only uh, been briefed about the study in terms of the residents going in and giving the discharge instructions uh, literally minutes before they walked into the room. Uh, and so we handed them a piece of paper that actually mentioned that, and then we actually verbally gave them those instructions read from that script. So it was as simple as uh, as described in the methods. Right. It's uh, Well, it's a wonderful study, and I'm looking forward to uh, moving on towards uh, questions from the audience. Again, uh, what we'd like to do is have the conversation be about the specific topic of the treatment of otitis media, but fair game is also how we engage uh, individuals uh, in the decision-making. In this case, parents are given the power to determine whether their child needed the antibiotic or not. And I think the beautiful thing is that the whole power structure of uh, individuals, in this case parents, feeling like they may not have access to what they need for their children is taken off the table because you've given them access directly and given them some guidelines. As an example, in our practice, general internal medicine practice, we obviously have you know many patients with low back pain. And the perception of most primary care is that when people come in with low back pain, they almost all want an MRI, which I don't necessarily believe is true, although people tend to be thinking about imaging for their low back pain. And there becomes a big power struggle whether as to whether the person should or should not have an MRI. And our approach has always been to take that off the table at the very beginning. If you want or need an MRI, you can get one today, you can get one tomorrow, we can get one the next day. So we can decide that together. There's no problem. But let's talk about whether you really need one or not and give you some guidance on, on when it's appropriate. And, it, and it's amazing how good the decision-making is. So the study, I think, in many ways is a validation of that. It's a validation of if given good information and good guidance, that parents and patients in general will and do make very good decisions for themselves. Well, Michelle, why don't we, uh, uh, why don't we move towards the question and answer session? You can go ahead and take over from here. Okay, thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open so you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two key. 
there will be one, we will wait just one moment for questions to come in. And it looks like we have received our first question. It's from 377th Medical Group. Please state your name and continue with your question. Yeah, my, my question would go back to the uh, the comments about the complication rate, uh, specifically. If you could, if you could actually pick up the phone or on the speakerphone, we can barely hear you. Can you hear me now? Perfect. Thank you. Right, cool. Uh, the, the question I had relating to. Uh, complications of otitis media, a lot of parents that I talk to are mostly concerned with hearing loss, and I'm wondering, you mentioned that the rate of mastoiditis between the Netherlands and the United States is the same. I'm wondering if that holds true for other complications, such as uh, long-term hearing loss problems or uh, cholesteatomas or uh, things of the ilk. You know, that's a very good question, and I don't, I'm not aware of any literature that's actually looked at, uh, at uh, the difference between uh, no treatment uh, of acute otitis media and a randomized control uh, trial, uh, and um, e either delayed, which I know there is no literature on, and either placebo uh, trials versus intervention trials. Um, however, we do know that the majority of cases of acute otitis media followed uh, who are not treated over time do resolve. I mean, there is a serious effusion whether you treat or you don't treat, and then uh, the middle ear fluid uh, does resolve over time, and that has nothing to do with antimicrobial uh, 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 prescription. It has to do with the body's uh, own resorptive processes and lymphatic drainage within the middle ear space. So from a uh, antimicrobial standpoint, from a uh, microbial standpoint, from a anatomic standpoint, it's really uh, hard for me to imagine why uh, non-treatment with acute otitis media, uh, excuse me, with antibiotics for acute otitis media uh, or a delayed prescription uh, for those children that continue to have uh, fever or ear pain would lead to an increased rate of hearing loss or cholesteatomas, and really we're not we're not hearing about that from the Netherlands. I mean, I, I, I would have to, again, uh, uh, look into the literature and see whether they do have a higher rate of those particular uh, issues. But uh, my sense is, is that that, is the, that has been a worry and that has been a concern and that has been brought up to me in the past uh, prior to even doing the study when we went through the IRB. But there's, there's, there's no data on it, but I just can't imagine that that, that, is, uh, that, that, that would be an issue. Okay, thank you very much. Our next question will come from Sony Burke Hospital. Please state your name and continue with your question. Yes, hello, uh, my name is Dr. Tom Fisher. I'm uh, from the Department of Emergency Medicine at Stony Brook University Hospital. Can you hear me okay? Hi, Tom. Yes, how you doing? And I'm also a member of the New York Region Otitis Project. Uh, and uh, Dr. Spiro, I would congratulate you on your work here. Uh, the New York Region Otitis Project is a uh, committee in New York convened by the New York State Department of Health expressly for this purpose to promote more judicious use of antibiotics for acute otitis media. And uh, your work uh, <clears throat> really echoes some of the work that I've done in, in just last May in, at the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine. I presented an abstract on uh, basically the same, <clears throat> uh, the, the same work that you had done. And in our series, we had 144 patients who were enrolled. And 
Uh, 73% recovered uneventfully without ever requiring antibiotics. <clears throat> the term we've used in New York is something called the observation option, and it's essentially the, uh, <laughs> the same thing echoing and modeled very, very closely after the work in the Netherlands. And uh, just a couple of points I just wanted to raise <clears throat> uh, in hearing the, the, you know, the, your, your remarks so far and the questions. Um, I was, I have to say, I was uh, absolutely amazed at the parental cooperation that we experienced. Uh, the problem with this, well, there's, there's several problems involved with, with this kind of a treatment change, but basically the problem I really, ex hating to put a too fine a point on it, but I, I really believe the problem are, is us as physicians. Parents are, there's a, there's a raft of uh, literature in late publications, parent magazine and things like that, that are talking quite, com quite frequently about the dangers of, over, of overuse of antibiotics in general. So parents seem to me, in, in, as we did this study, it was a, um, it was a prospective case series, uh, and virtually we didn't have any parents objecting to it. They were very willing to, to go along with this, and I, and I think it sort of underscores a, uh, a treatment paradigm that applies to really all of pediatrics. I think parents aren't necessarily looking for a particular treatment plan. What they want is an explanation that makes sense. And I think the, 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 when we broached the subject uh, and, and explained to them how acute otitis media overwhelmingly uh, improves on its own, <coughs> we had really no problems. Um, the problem remains uh, that our staff at the hospital, pediatricians inclu included, and uh, the rest of our ER staff, we had about three, three or four attendings who, were, who participated in the study, so it took a little while to get uh, to hit um, the uh, our, uh, the 144 patients, but that's and even the first question that uh, that was already asked. I think the reason for that uh, why why uh, physicians are so skittish about this about incorporating this and is that, is it is really an unwarranted fear of complications. <clears throat> and you know, as you mentioned, Oxpiro, you know. We're not really inventing the wheel here. This has been done in the Netherlands for years. In fact, it's official government policy there. And they see uh, rates of resistance for strep pneumo on the order of 1%, whereas here in the States, we're seeing this in, in some parts of the country, it's, it's approaching 50%. And as you mentioned uh, correctly, the, the, the risk of the, the so-called suppurative complications, namely mastoiditis and meningitis, are virtually comparable. <laughs> but I think, and I, I've noticed this in the seven or eight years that I've been on the committee and, and trying to promote uh, uh, a, watchful, uh, a, a watchful waiting uh, period, which we, as I say, we call the observation option, it's amazing to me how, how difficult it's been to get fellow docs uh, almost to do their job, essentially, because it, it really the power rests with us. It's, if we would just um, <clears throat> understand the nature of acute otitis media and sort of uh, put to rest this unreasonable fear that something terrible is going to happen if we don't hammer this kid with antibiotics right off the bat. <clears throat> and I think that's, I don't know, I'm not sure how to fix that except to maybe start education uh, earlier in medical school and residencies. The time devoted to acute otitis media, even its proper diagnosis, um, is, is pretty small. In fact, prior to, to presenting this abstract last May, uh, a couple years ago, I did a, just a survey to, to, uh, to see if I could uh, physicians' attitudes toward the observation uh, 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 toward the observation option, and I was surprised to find that in our community, this is out of Island, 35% of pediatricians in the community 
from a phone survey we did, did not even know the proper definition of achetotitis media. So that sort of leads to another point, which maybe you can speak to, um, the importance of proper diagnosis and uh, the use of tympanometry or acoustic reflectometry using devices such as the ear check, which is what we use in our study. So um, again, Dr. Spiro, I'd just like to congratulate you and uh, I want to hear your, your, your thoughts on, on the comments I just made on very similar work we're doing here in New York. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Fisher, and I just want to uh, congratulate you and your committee. I'm aware of the work that's done with the uh, Otitis Media Project in, in New York State, and it's a bold and uh, a wonderful approach that the state of New York and your committee has taken to, uh, on a statewide level to promote awareness and intervention in regard to uh, reducing unnecessary use of antibiotics. I want to make two or three points that, that, that you just made. The first is that it is very difficult to change physician behavior. And right. the first, uh, uh, I mean, we, you're, you're at uh, uh, SUNY Stony Brook, and I'm here at uh, Oregon Health and Science University. And part of our job in pediatric emergency medicine, emergency medicine as assistant as, as, as professors within uh, the framework of, of an edu as being educators, is to work with medical students and residents and, and make sure that they're following evidence-based medicine guidelines and what, what we do know that's published and peer-reviewed. And uh, again, if you, look at the, if you look at the literature, this approach makes sense from multiple standpoints. Uh, I was surprised when I went back into academic medicine after being out for five years in uh, general rural practice that everyone was still prescribing uh, 10 days of, of, of amoxicillin for acute otitis media because in 1998, uh, Scott Dowell published uh, some guidelines uh, within the framework of the American Academy of Pediatrics that specifically uh, uh, recommended short uh, course anti biotics for children with acute otitis media, so children greater than the age of two to receive uh, five to seven days as opposed to the standard 10. But everyone at this academic setting where I was a fellow in pediatric emergency medicine was still prescribing 10 days of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, again, uh, practice is hard to change. I think you, you get into a certain routine as a physician, whether you're in academics or whether you are in uh, community practice, and you just normally see acute otitis media and you're right for 10 days of antibiotics. Um, and I think there is a, a negative empowerment for physicians who prescribe antibiotics. I think that, that it is an empowering move that some, a physician can do. And I'm hoping that one of the features of the study that will be employed is exactly what you mentioned, Dr. Fisher, which is to make the right diagnosis and also to uh, prescribe pain medication for uh, otalgia. It's very, very important. And I think hopefully uh, addressing the pain associated with otitis media will, will be a part of what changes and that it is not always necessary to immediately prescribe uh, antibiotics. But it, it, behavior change, especially in physicians that have been practicing for a few years, is very, very difficult. Mm. You know, we, uh, wonderful comments. And thanks, Tom, for, for your comments and David for the response. We all struggle with very similar issues. And when the patient is in front of us, uh, there is a pressure to do something for them other than just to chat and listen to their lungs or maybe take a look in their ears. And uh, as an internist, we obviously deal much more with uh, upper respiratory tract infections than we do with otitis media. But there are many, many different ways of going about uh, intervening with the population that we take care of. 
as an example, we have a monthly electronic newsletter that goes out to uh, the majority of our patients where we actively try to uh, influence the way they think about their care. Once a year about this time, we that newsletter will, will contain something about upper respiratory tract infections and when it's appropriate to come in and see us and when they really don't need to worry about coming in to see us and what are the appropriate over-the-counter measures that they should take to uh, to treat themselves. And I think that trying to relieve ourselves of the pressure, trying to keep patients away from us so that we don't have to cross that bridge of, you know, feeling that pressure to prescribe is actually a very helpful thing to try to get upstream. I think it is one of the measures. I know most of us don't have that sort of connectivity to our patients, but in the future we will. I think it's that sort of shaping the demand, shaping the way our patients and the parents in this case think about the illnesses is really a critical part of it. Thank you. Uh, Michelle, next call. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes from the Educational Association of Georgia South University. Please state your name and go ahead. Yes, this is Linda Carlson calling, um, and I'm a, actually a pediatric nurse practitioner who travels around presenting educational workshops on the diagnosis of otitis media, and I've had the privilege of presenting the program with several of the leading otolaryngologists from around the country at a variety of um, medical schools and residency training programs. Um, so I thank you for your excellent work, Dr. Spiro, and my question is, I have two questions, actually. Number one, um, on diagnosis. I noticed that there were your criteria for, and I may have missed this, for diagnostic um, inclusion were not listed. And I know that Dr. Fisher also asked about what, what those criteria were and how the diagnosis was actually established. And number two, I'm wondering if all of the people who actually provided the care were were they residents or were there were did you have nurse practitioners, PAs, did you have any other people um, who were involved in that study? Those are great questions. I think the first question is a very, very important question in regard to the methodology and when we were devising the study. Uh, it, it was something that I felt very important uh, about in regard to uh, the methods. This study was designed to be a pragmatic approach. I use the word pragmatic uh, in reference to Dr. Little's work and some of the work that he's uh, performed in regard to observational practice. Uh, anytime you, uh, we could have des designed the study in a number of ways. We could have uh, had uh, uh, certain forms of uh, otoscopy, uh, video otoscopy, and we also could have, uh, to make the diagnosis and indeed for follow-up as well. However, that would have, uh, that would have uh, intervened and uh, um, interrupted what I would consider the natural course of what happens when one sees a patient in the emergency department and follows up with a patient. So this was indeed, a, uh, as much as possible, uh, very much a pragmatic and observational study outside of the intervention of the uh, directions. Uh, in other words, the clinical routine was maintained for the most part except for, again, the interventions and the follow-up phone calls, which I would uh, argue are minimal. In terms of the diagnosis, uh, as was stated in the methods, we uh, did review the uh, um, uh, current guidelines with all of our faculty uh, prior to the study. So those guidelines were not only reviewed, uh, and those are the, the May 2000 and 
for guidelines, but they uh, were also posted uh, in the emergency department uh, in a prominent location to remind them what those guidelines uh, were. But outside of that, we did not uh, have uh, an otolaryngologist or some expert uh, in the emergency department uh, confirming uh, true effusion and true uh, meeting of the uh, current uh, criteria, which came out a few months before the uh, uh, study started. In regard to your second question, is that we had attending physicians take care of all of the patients. However, again, this was an academic medical set setting, uh, and we did have residents involved in the care of uh, these patients as well. In fact, uh, many times the residents and the attendings were in the room when the, when the instructions were given, the discharge instructions were given. However, an attending physician always uh, supervised uh, residents in our setting, uh, and we did not. We do not have nurse practitioners. We did have a uh, physician assistant as part of our faculties had uh, close to 20 years of experience in pediatric emergency medicine. However, he was also supervised by an attending uh, for these particular patients as well. So uh, I hope that answers your question, Linda. Thank you, and again, I appreciate this wonderful work. Thank you. David, one part of the study is that uh, you know it was performed in the emergency department, uh, and uh, from that perspective, in terms of the conversation you have with patients, it really shouldn't look anything substantively different from what conversation we might have, you know, in a medical practice. Um, any idea uh, as to why the patients were presenting to the emergency department as opposed to calling their primary care physician? Do they not have primary care, or they just was it in the middle of the night and they're just anxious about it? I think um, much of this was after hours uh, um, and on the weekends, uh, and I uh, point out uh, to the uh, um, professionals attending the conference today that uh, I agree we should be general. This this can easily be generalized to the the uh, other primary care settings, but this was performed in emergency department, and the demographics reveal such because it was an uh, emergency department in the Northeast, and 80% of our patients were either African-American or Latina. So uh, we, we had a, a high percentage of patients in our study that uh, were uh, 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 Medicaid. Right. Now, you, uh, at the beginning of the last answer, you talked about the pragmatic approach you took to the study, and, and obviously uh, you're referring to the study itself. Now that the study's over, what are you, you what are you doing in the emergency room? Have you maintained the same system? Uh, and then, uh, if you were going to make recommendations for, you know, the standard medical practice out there, what recommendation would you have? What language would you use, or you recommend them using uh, with their patients? That's, those are good questions, and Chuck, I, I am using this practice. I've been using this practice since uh, 1995, and uh, now in, in the position that I'm, I'm in, not only am I using it myself, but I'm teaching it as an educator. And I think, uh, you know, for uh, some of the callers, uh, for Linda, and uh, certainly for Dr. Fisher, uh, they are in roles. Uh, where they can actually uh, disseminate uh, evidence-based medicine, hopefully my study and Dr. Little's study and other studies. Uh, Dr. McCormick has a wonderful study from Texas and, uh, um, and other, other studies that have, have looked at um, of, uh, either no treatment or a delayed prescription. So I am using this uh, as, part of, uh, as part of my work. And what was the second question? Uh, 
Second question then was if you're going to make recommendations for the you know the standard uh, pediatrics practice or uh, family uh, family physician practice, what what would you recommend in terms of the language that they use, or what other what other specific changes in their system of care would you recommend? I, I think before anyone prescribes an antibiotic for a patient, especially for a child, I think they should be. I think we need to be thinking about. The, the question is, is this necessary or is this not necessary? And in regard to acutotitis media, I think this this is a very safe approach. And I think if uh, one had not has not used this approach in the past, it could be uh, an easy approach to uh, employ if one's in private practice to follow up and see whether patients are filling or not filling and uh, get comfortable with this kind of approach. Uh, um, and it's obviously much easier to do in a in a in a in a, in a primary care practice where you have follow-up, uh, but it can, as we mentioned earlier, uh, follow-up can easily be uh, performed in an emergency department setting as well. I think, again, it's very important to address the pain associated with hepatitis media, and I think using some of the language that we used in our study <clears throat> and uh, educating the family is, is, is very, very important, Chuck. And sitting down and spending an extra minute or two talking with the family, uh, being transparent, empowering the parent with a decision to fill or not fill, uh, I think that uh, most uh, practitioners will find that they will have a very, very uh, content parent and, uh, and, and potentially saving uh, uh, use of an antibiotic, which may have, as we talked about, uh, untoward side effects. Right, yeah, interesting. So uh, I don't know if you have any specific system changes in the emergency room at OHSU. It's interesting for some organizations they've moved, as an example, when people come in for an upper respiratory tract infection to give them a little, you know, packet of Tylenol or Advil or, you know, decongestant that they can go home to use so that they feel like they've left with something. And I'm assuming here you could develop a little otitis media packet with the eardrops in there. Uh, so that they feel like they've gotten something on their, when they're leaving. Don't know if that would be useful or not, but it is something that others have used in other situations. It's a great point, and every single time, 100% of the time, when a child comes in with true acutotitis media, we give them drops in the emergency department for their ears, otic analgesic drops, mm -hmm. and we send them home uh, with that with that sample. Uh, and I think many parents are incredibly satisfied with that. Right. Right. Good, Michelle. Next question. Okay, thank you. It looks like there are currently no more questions in the queue. Great. Uh, well, David, um, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, before you actually got the call started, about the rates of resistance in the community and, from your perspective, seeing things like abscesses, which uh, we used to be able to treat comfortably with uh, either, you know, something like dicloxacillin or uh, cephalexin or something along those lines, and uh, now we can't do that because of the rates of uh, resistance are... Uh, obviously on the rise at the community perspective. So there's an obvious imperative for us to control uh, uh, antibiotic use out there. How, uh, how are you thinking about spreading this information uh, in the community beyond your emergency room? Are you doing anything with the pediatricians which are in the OHSU network or in the general community? Uh, or uh, what would you recommend in that regard? Any, any thoughts on that? Well, again, I think uh, um, I'm I'm working with uh, a number of different organizations, both within the university and in, in the state, to uh, talk about this issue. Uh, I'm um, involved in some regional conferences where uh, I'm speaking, and we'll be interacting with community pediatricians. 
Uh, I think what uh, Dr. Fisher mentioned earlier is very, very important. I think that it is very difficult to change physician behavior. <clears throat> and I think many of us on this phone call today and those that are in academic settings have a responsibility to teach evidence-based medicine principles. And uh, I'm hopeful that this work and, and work that's done uh, prior to this in regard to delayed prescription uh, use and empowering families will be disseminated uh, within uh, the confines of medical schools and, and residency programs for pediatric residents, emergency medicine residents, family medicine residents to, uh, uh, to uh, use this approach within, within the academic setting because that, that is how change will occur. Um, I, I uh, know from other previous uh, studies that it is hard to change physician behavior. I don't know. I'm sure you've seen that, Chuck, uh, in your practice as internal medicine and, and working with colleagues uh, uh, in in your subspecialty. That that physician behavior is very very difficult to change. Yeah, we we have a decent sized consulting business also, or teaching business, trying to help people adopt uh, quality improvement methodologies and whatnot. And it is. It is a challenge, but it is exactly these kinds of studies which I think uh, uh, lowers the anxiety level about making some of the changes, so, um, so I really appreciate it. And again, I think it is, does address this bigger decision about how we engage uh, patients in decision-making, in this case, again, parents. Uh, Michelle, there's one more question on the line. Yes, next question comes from Arnett Clinic. Please state your name and go ahead with your question. Hi, good afternoon. This is Jim Bean, and uh, Dr. Spiro, thank you very much for your strong work with this study. I wanted to um, just make an observation. I uh, have been a part of a practice-based research network that did very similar work um, in a series of about 19 pediatric practices um, based out of Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And um, we found very similar um, uh, results uh, from uh, providing very pointed but brief uh, educational intervention around otitis media and um, a wait-and-see approach, or what we call the SNAP approach, safety net antibiotic prescription approach. And just as I look at the the number, uh, the percentage of families who chose not to fill the prescription in the three studies that have been brought up, yours was 62%, um, Dr. Fisher's was 73% from his abstract, and ours was 69%, they all correlate pretty closely. And I think it speaks to the power of just communicating and giving parents the option. And um, it's interesting to me that your study and Dr. Fisher's study were done in emergency departments where, you know, theoretically the connection with the provider is not as strong as it would be in a, a private practice setting, and yet your numbers are, are as good and greater than, than what we found in a private practice setting. So um, the, the empowerment overpowered maybe the, the connection and the trust factor that would naturally exist in a private practice setting. And then uh, to get to Dr. Kylo's question about well, what's the language um, you use, I can say that in, in, our, in my practice, the language now becomes instead of you have otitis, your child has otitis media, here's an antibiotic prescription, the language becomes your child has otitis media, and there are two very reasonable options that we can, that we can choose from, and I'm going to let you help make the decision, or I want you to help make the decision. Here's a script. and. You can either treat now or you can treat for pain and discomfort and fever and kind of hang on to the script and see how he feels in, in you know, one or two days. 
Um, it's really a pretty casual conversation. Our study was a little more structured. We provided a little handout, but in practice, a very casual conversation, I think, uh, goes over very well, and, and families feel very comfortable with that. So those are my comments. I'd, uh, first of all, Jim, I'm very well aware of the SNAP study, and uh, you should be congratulated because I think it's seminal work in regard to um, uh, delayed prescription, and uh, it was a wonderful study performed uh, in the Cincinnati region. And we, we actually obviously took it at one in a different approach, being in the emergency department, right. and our, our population was different. But even if you look at Dr. Little's study that was performed in England in 1999, which was really the first study looking at a wait-and-see prescription, uh, his rate of, of, of non-fill is in the... Uh, three-fourths range in the high 60s and low 70s range. So there's actually a number of studies across continents which uh, show a similar correlation in uh, filling and not filling. And we all need to remember that the, the denominator here is 15 million prescriptions in the United States alone. And, you know, uh, uh, two-thirds of 15 million is 10 million. And uh, that could there's a tremendous amount of work we could be performing in the United States with what you described, Jim, is in terms of the openness approach with just a few minutes of education uh, and uh, a discussion. And I, I think the key part of all this is, is what was uh, mentioned in the last guideline was emphasizing uh, pain because I think most parents are most concerned about the pain their child is having. And I think if we address that issue up front with the families, uh, both with the use of uh, uh, Araugan or some sort of otic analgesic and uh, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory such as ibuprofen, I think that, uh, that, that there's a strong likelihood that parents will not fill the prescription. And, you know, if they do fill the prescription because the child is still uncomfortable two days out or continues to have fever, that's what we want anyway. Absolutely. So well, I thank you for your work. work. Yeah, thank you. Jim, thanks for your comments. And uh, either Jim, I don't know if you're still on the line, or David, are there other clinical situations in which you use similar language? I think uh, that there are other conditions that this could be potentially uh, used for uh, in terms of other pathophysiologic states, such as conjunctivitis. Right. Well, you know, uh, that there are potential other uh, uh, uses for this. In the adult world, uh, bronchitis, although I know that uh, for bronchitis, uh, uh, there, there are uh, placebo-controlled studies that show that antibiotics really do not make a difference in other meta-analyses, uh, but uh, um, uh, certainly there are other states, uh, potentially even for conjunctivitis. There was a recent study published, again, out of England uh, by Dr. Rose et al. in The Lancet, which looked at uh, uh, no treatment for acute conjunctivitis in children and adults and found that uh, rates were similar uh, in terms of clinical course. Um, so I think there are potential other uh, conditions. I think sinusitis, I think uh, obviously we know that rhinitis or our general upper respiratory infections should never be treated with an antibiotic acute upper respiratory infections. So I would not even approach a delayed antibiotic prescription for upper respiratory infections because, uh, in children because those should not be given uh, antibiotics. Yeah, wonderful. And as I said, we use it for very frequently for upper respiratory tract infections. We try not to give antibiotics at all, but if the patient is, is somewhat pushy about it or you get the sense that they're very, they're, they have a high expectation about antibiotics, we will give them the prescription, encourage them not to take it, 
uh, unless they don't start improving in the, in the next couple of days. And we even have you know, a similar conversation, as I said, around the use of things like MRIs and low back pain, where they don't actually get the prescription or the order form, but we, we really try to relieve the tension uh, that they may or may not be able to get a test that they think that they may need by saying, you know, look, we can get the MRI today, we can get it tomorrow, we can get it the day after that. That's not the point. Let's talk about whether you really need one or not. And uh, just changing that decision-making, changing the authority, and they're feeling like they're in control makes a lot of difference. Huge. Yeah. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for questions. I really want to uh, thank everybody for participating today. Just a reminder, the next author in the room is November 15th at the same time, starting at 2 p.m. Eastern time. The article was published in today's GM October 18th, entitled Fish Intake, Contaminants, and Human Health, Evaluating the Risks and the Benefits by Dr. Uh, Dariush uh, Muzaffarian. And I look forward to having everybody join us on that call also. Thanks, uh, Dr. Spiro. Really appreciate your contributions. Thank you. Um, as you know, again, this uh, author in the room is a monthly series take, that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month, sponsored by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And please stay tuned to both their websites uh, for additional information, or if you want audio recordings from past uh, sessions, they are available there also. Thank you, everybody, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Author in the Room. Thank you so much. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. To end this call, simply hang up your phone. Again, thank you.